Awesome. I welcome you all today, wherever you're worshiping, at any of our campuses around the Capital District. You know, it was a conversation that I'll really never forget. Even to this moment, it's still indelibly etched in my mind. I've seldom had someone be so candid, so forthright, so descriptive in a conversation. The man who sat in my office was describing in lurid detail at times the path he had been on and all the ways that he had failed himself, his family, and God. He talked about the fact that he had been so far out of God's will that he had certainly wrecked his marriage and it was headed for divorce. He had lost the respect of his daughters. He said, I have squandered boatloads of money that would have been our financial security for my family going forward. And he said, I've basically just lived contrary to everything that I profess to believe. I've been a total hypocrite. One thing I can say about him, he was being blunt and honest. But I'll never forget at that point as he kind of finished describing the journey he'd been on, at one point he leaned across my desk a bit and he said, Pastor, what's left for me now? I mean, I have strayed so far from God's A plan. What is there? Is the rest of my life going to be some horrible plan B? I'll never forget that conversation. And I believe that the question on that man's mind that day is on the mind of many. Because we know we've made decisions, we've had choices, we've had moments in time where we feel like we missed an open door. We've made the decision to go down roads that we sensed or definitely knew were contrary to God's purpose and plan for us. And we kind of wonder, what is there for me now? I mean, is there any way back from that? And we kind of feel disqualified, you know, to be used by God or to be what he wants us to be. I'm convinced that that is a very common experience. So in this third message today in this series called Fear of Missing Out, How Can I Know God's Plan? I want to talk about that issue. I think it's incredibly relevant of what do we do when we know that we've basically missed something that we knew was God's will and God's purpose and God's plan for us. Well, there's a passage of scripture in Jeremiah 18 that I think addresses that question head on. And God is about to give Jeremiah the prophet, an inspired prophet who wrote scripture. He's about to give him a sort of parable here, a real life parable that illustrates a powerful spiritual lesson. I read from Jeremiah 18, starting in verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. 
Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Now, clay pots were incredibly common in this culture. You drank from them, cooked with them, stored things in them, and essentially used them every day of your life. So, God is taking something here that everybody would know about, so common, and using it to illustrate a very uncommon lesson. Now, let's be sure about the context of this. Originally, this message was to the nation of Israel, specifically to the southern kingdom known as Judah. They're called Judah many times in Scripture. They had strayed from God's path. They had broken God's laws again and again. They had ignored and actually persecuted the prophets who came to tell them what God wanted them to hear. And now they're beginning to suffer for it. So, I want us to be clear, it was originally for God's old covenant people. But make no mistake, the principles and the key lessons from this passage are super relevant to us as new covenant people today. In fact, God has wonderfully repeated the key lessons in what we call the New Testament. So let's go on this journey and learn together from this incredible And it is one of those classic stories. I'll never forget the first message I heard as a kid from this. I still remember the title. The title, you know, preachers love to use alliteration. The title was Made, Marred, and Mended. I'll never forget that. Made, Marred, and Mended. And if this message is no good, you remember that title at least. And at least you've got something to take away. That's all you need to know. You're made by God, you're marred by sin, and you're mended by the divine potter. Why don't we just close and go home? That's all we need to know right there. Jeremiah went down to the potter's house. Now, the potter, of course, in this living parable is God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, the maker of you and me. And the clay he's working with, as we apply this as new covenant people, would represent us, our life as an individual, in the divine potter's hands. So he's working with this wet clay. It's malleable, it's moldable, as he's making this clay pot. But the text says it becomes marred somehow in his hands. Now, it's interesting to me that it doesn't say how it became marred. I suppose that is a bit irrelevant, isn't it? We could ask that question all across the sanctuary today at any of our locations. And there's all kinds of ways that we go off the path. All kinds of ways we sin and make bad choices. How we become marred is not as relevant as the fact that sin is universal. It's pervasive. Bad things happen. And the clay that is our lives definitely becomes marred. And so this master artisan this skilled divine potter takes the wet flawed clay and he remolds it into something else now i love the way the text stated in fact i kind of put it in bold as we read it earlier 
It says, so the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Now, I want to pause there before we go any further at all. I think that wording is critical to the lesson today. He did not say the potter shaped it into second best. Do you hear that? He did not say the potter shaped it into a cheap imitation of the original. Nor did he say the potter shaped it into a lousy pot of which he was really disgusted and ashamed because it had been flawed before. And he certainly did not say the potter shaped it into a pathetic plan B since the A plan was now ruined. I remind you again of what the word says. The potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Friends, I want to tell you, if you're a marred clay pot like me, there's good news in this story for people like us. Now, in the previous chapter, and it's always good to read the chapters or the passages before and after the one you're studying, this is an interesting unit. There's some amazing verses in chapter 17. I would urge you to read it on your own and maybe memorize some of those verses. I particularly love verses 7, 8, and 9. They're fantastic. But there's a peculiar verse, verse 12. I'm going to read it. It says, A glorious throne, exalted from the beginning, is the place of our sanctuary. Many scholars believe that that is a way of talking about God's sovereignty. And particularly in this context, he's talking about the aspect of God's sovereignty where he redemptively works on our behalf. It says he is our sanctuary. In other words, sanctuary, if you look up synonyms of that, it'll give you words like fortress and refuge, a place of safety. Or it may use a place where you find security. I find that interesting. What is it, what is it, friends, about God's sovereignty that gives us this sense of security? And I make reference back to that first message in the series where I ask you, is God's will like a freight train, fixed and unalterable? Or, as an extreme opposite, is it like a feather on the wind, whimsical, no purpose, blown wherever the winds of fate may take it. And I urged you to reject both of those metaphors. Is that what gives us God's security? That it's just kind of a good luck thing? Or it's a, look, this is going to happen no matter what? No, no, no. I think we find security in God's sovereignty as presented by Jeremiah because this inspired prophet is presenting a view here of the sovereign God represented by the potter. And when the clay becomes marred in his hands, no matter how it happens, our sovereign potter is a master at redemptively shaping the clay into a marvelous, what you might call, plan B. Boy, that was certainly true for the nation of Israel. And there is a huge message of hope to flawed people like me and like you. 
It says to us today, loud and clear, the sovereign God, no matter what you're going through today, no matter where you've been, no matter what road you've been on, the sovereign God still has a plan, and it's a good one for you. Verse 6 again reads, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Failure is not final, God is saying. I'm a God of grace and redemption. I can take the most marred and messed up clay, and as long as it's still pliable, I can do something marvelous with it. Now, one thing I know for sure is that the one speaking to you today is marred clay. And one thing that I think I know for sure is that everybody under the sound of my voice right now is marred clay. In fact, just so we can all kind of confess it together, I want to ask you to say five words out loud with me. Can you do that? Here are the five words. All God's children are marred. Would you say those five words, all God's children are marred? Can we say it together right now, please, at all of our locations? All God's children are marred. One more time, please. All God's children are marred. Nothing could be more true. To me, that's the easiest doctrine in all the Bible to illustrate the depravity of human beings. We're all marred. There are things in our past we cannot undo. There are times we've outright rebelled against God. We're all sinful by nature and by choice. David put it like this in the Psalms, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. We all have hearts that are bent toward idolatry and selfishness. Trust me on this, we are all marred. I don't want you to think I'm laboring this point too much, but let's go a step further. The truth is we're not only marred, but many of us have deep secrets that we wrestle with. Some of you, maybe your closest friends or family don't even know about it. Perhaps you had an abortion years ago or you encouraged and funded an abortion and you've not had the strength to ever say that or talk about that with anyone and it haunts you today. Perhaps you had a period where you went so off the rails morally that you shudder, you literally shudder to think today of some of the things you did then. Perhaps you've been through a wrenching divorce or a number of divorces and oh, it's messy. And you got hurt deeply and perhaps you hurt other people. And again, it's so messy, you don't know even where to begin to try to pick up the pieces of that. Perhaps you committed a crime, literally a crime and you never got caught. But all these years, You've been kind of going through life with the sword of Damocles over your head, like a black cloud, and you're just paranoid. When is the shoe going to fall for me? There's all kinds of ways that the clay becomes marred. And the truth of the matter is, every single one of us today probably in some way have this fear, this fear that somehow we're missing out a fear of missing out on God's best for us. Again, I say, I believe, I believe 
there's good news in this message today. I want to point out this detail because I think it's theologically important. And that is, it is not damaged. The clay is not damaged by the potter. The text says the clay is damaged in, in, preposition in, the potter's hand. Where do the damages come from? Three places. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And many of the wounds that we bear are self-inflicted wounds. Our own flesh, our own sinful nature and choices we make. Some are just caused because we live in a sinful, broken world marred by generations of the accretions and accumulations of sin and all of its evil structures. And there is an enemy out there that is, Jesus said, out to destroy you. To steal and kill and destroy. But here's the message of hope. When the vessel he's working on gets marred, he doesn't take it off the wheel, discard it, and throw it on the garbage heap. God's not done with you. No, he reshapes it as seems best to him. Or to put it a bit differently, with God, there is no experience that God can't bring something redemptive out of. Wow, that's good news. Now, a few weeks ago in our Boot Camp's basic series, as we were studying the book of James, in the message on the tongue, I told you about young David Brainerd. I told you then that I would return to that story. So here we are. I'm following up on that and doing what I said. For those of you who may not remember or maybe didn't hear that, you can certainly go review it online. But David Brainerd was the valedictorian of his class as his third, in his third year as a student at Yale University, and he lived in the early 1700s. David Brainerd, a young man growing up in Connecticut, his one dream in life, this was his passion. He'd become a Christian at the age of 21. God had moved on his heart in a marvelous way. Boy, you talk about God's will. God had made it clear. As far as David Brainerd was concerned, there was one thing he was living for and that was to serve God by being a pastor of a local church and he wanted to do it in his home state of Connecticut but you know how it is sometimes with very gifted people and if you're one of those very gifted people out there today if I'm talking to you you're extremely gifted you, you you've just got amazing abilities and gifts from God maybe you're very smart maybe you've got amazing skill in all kinds of areas there is a horrible temptation to pride. And let me tell you, by all accounts, everyone who knew him, David Brainerd, was obnoxiously proud. Even though he's a Christian, even though he was called by God, even though he knew God's will for his life, he was obnoxiously proud and had a mouth that was out of control. Do you know Christians can actually be like that? Ooh. And he had the audacity to criticize Chauncey Whittlesey, one of the mentors, the erudite scholars at Yale University, and Yale wasn't looking for customer feedback like that. David Brainerd was expelled irrevocably from school. He's a valedictorian. He's going to graduate first in his class. He's a proven scholar, amazing student. 
But now is he not, he's not only going to not be able to finish his studies, he will not be able to graduate at all under any circumstances. Now let me ask you, isn't that a dream killer? <laughs> I, if that were you, come on, wouldn't that change the game for you? You know what, most people, I believe, would go through the rest of their lives being bitter about that. They would go, come on, that was so trivial, the things I said compared to the action that was taken, and their heart would get hard. They'd become probably cynical over time. They'd live the rest of their lives just rehearsing what happened to them and letting a root of bitterness grow. Was God's A plan gone forever from David Brainerd's life? Not a chance. Although he passed away at the age of 29, David Brainerd's life stands as a mighty testimony to what God, the sovereign potter, can do with marred clay as long as that clay is still soft and pliable. You say, well, how did it happen? What was plan B like? God worked through his failure and closed the door. Remember we said last week, God guides us through closed doors? There was a rule in that day, you could not be a pastor in the New England states unless you graduated from one of these approved schools. And none of them would now accept, they had a pact, none of them, when a student was expelled, none of the other schools could accept the student. So he couldn't just go to another school and get his degree. His dream was done, done, no way. But he didn't wear that failure as a label. He wore it as a lesson. He didn't know what the future held. He just knew that his sovereign God, the potter, held the future for him. And David Brainerd was humbled. You know what it is possible for people to change? Praise God, it is. I'm telling you, obnoxiously proud people can be humbled and Brainerd confessed his sin he took full responsibility for it and accepted the full consequences of his failure it was what I call his midnight train moment have you ever been there now for younger generation you may not know Gladys Knight but to me Gladys Knight and her song midnight train to Georgia is undoubtedly one of the greatest songs in history. Here's some of the words. He kept dreaming that someday he'd be a star, but he sure found out the hard way that dreams don't always come true. So he's pawned all his hopes, and he even sold his own car, bought a one-way ticket back to the life he once knew. Said he's leaving on that midnight train to Georgia. I kind of hear the pips in the background here. As I'm saying these words, said he's going back to find a simpler place and time. Have you ever had a midnight train moment? Listen, when our plans lie in ruins, God has a better plan. And on his 24th birthday, the very year David Brainerd was expelled from Yale University, it was then called Yale College. He wrote in his journal, this day I am 24 years of age. Oh, how much mercy have I received the past year. How often has God caused his goodness to pass before me. 
He's no longer a proud person. David saw his expulsion from Yale as a merciful and redemptive reshaping of his life. And he refused to be defined by the past. So what happened? He had to get a whole new ambition. He had to dream a whole new dream. And so since he couldn't be a pastor now, he began to ask God, what is your will for me? And he became a missionary to the Native Americans of New England and New Jersey. And you talk about a plan B. David Brainerd's diary and the introduction that Jonathan Edwards wrote to that have become the most powerful missionary documents in history. By their own testimony, the diary and the introduction to it have inspired thousands and thousands of missionaries as they saw how God worked through David Brainerd's life. And I just want to tell you from my perspective, if what happened to David Brainerd after his great A plan failure was a plan B, then folks, I want to tell you, plan B can be better than plan A. Because God did more than anybody would have ever dreamed through David Brainerd. But hear me today, all of that was possible because David Brainerd, by God's grace, responded to his marred life with humility and repentance. The clay of his heart was soft and pliable in the potter's hands. Now, I want to end the sermon right there because up until now, it's all positive. <laughs> I just want to stop right there, have the benediction and say, let's all, you know, kind of wrap up with a song and go home. But I can't really do that as much as I want to because I really like to just be encouraging to people. That's what I like. But there's actually another side, and I know every one of you is probably asking this question. What happens if the clay's not soft and pliable? What then? Well, chapter 19 answers that. Jeremiah 19, verse 1, this is what the Lord says. Go and buy a clay jar from a potter. Take along some of the elders of the people and of the priests, and go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnom near the entrance of the potsherd gate. There proclaim the words I tell you. And I won't read all the words, but the following words basically say, God says, look, you've forsaken me. You've given up on me and you've turned to false gods. You have built idols and altars to Baal. Your hearts have become hard against me. And as a result, there's another option now. The option is not remolding the clay. The option now is breaking the clay. Redemption is not an option right now in your condition. It's now time for the judgment of God. Verse 10, then break the jar while those who go with you are watching and say to them, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I will smash this nation. God's words, not mine. I will smash this nation and this city just as this potter's jar is smashed and cannot be repaired. Verse 14, Jeremiah then returned from Topheth, where the Lord had sent him to prophesy, and stood in the court of the Lord's temple and said to all the people, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Listen, I'm going to bring on this city and the villages around it every disaster I pronounced against them because they were stiff-necked and would not listen to my words. 
In other words, they've gotten beyond the stage where the clay is soft and pliable. They've become so hardened, judgment is coming. God says, I'm going to smash this hardened clay jar. Yikes. I don't like to preach that part. And just like us today, the people who first heard this message about judgment didn't like it. In fact, we won't go there. I'll encourage you to do it on your own. But if you read in chapter 20, the chief temple officer, a guy named Pasher, was having none of this judgment stuff. He was indignant that Jeremiah or anyone would dare to speak about judgment. And so you know what he did? He had Jeremiah arrested, beaten badly, and put in stocks. So what's the message of Jeremiah so far? When we're out of God's will, marred and scarred by sin, but we humbly repent and remain pliable in God's hands, the divine potter is so amazing in his sovereignty, he can take a total mess and reshape it as seems best to him. But, but, if we remain hardened in the deceitfulness of sin and rigidly resist his will, as the people in that day had done, as prophet after prophet had come and warned them, look, you've got to turn, you've got to turn, and they kept on ignoring it in judgment. God says, I need to smash the jar. Now here, we could take the time, we won't, but to illustrate this with literally lesson after lesson from the Old Testament, I do want to mention two or three fast. Pharaoh. 14 times in the book of Exodus, it talks about Pharaoh's hardened heart. Eight out of the 14 says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Six of them, including five of the last ones, say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so people debate, well, was it God or was it Pharaoh? I say it like this. Pharaoh had such a rebellious disposition against God that even when God came to him with redemptive possibility, every new interaction with God just hardened Pharaoh's heart more. And so in the words of Jeremiah 19, he had to smash him. Another example, a king named Zedekiah. It says of him in 2 Chronicles 36, he became stiff-necked and hardened his heart and would not turn to the Lord, the God of Israel. God had to smash him. He was not responsive and pliable in the hand of God. How about one more? God said to Ezekiel, the prophet, but the house of Israel is not willing to listen to you because they're not willing to listen to me. For the whole house of Israel is hardened and obstinate. And God had to smash them. Folks, I say to you, a hardened heart is a dangerous thing. But perhaps my favorite story of someone who, like David Brainerd, was pompous and proud... And God dealt with him in judgment, and yet there was a redemptive hope, is the story of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. He was so pompous. He said, look at the great Babylon I have built. And God said, enough is enough. And God dealt with him in judgment. And he literally was like a grazing beast in the field under the judgment of God until he finally 
began to soften his heart. He finally came to his senses and he turned back to God and actually declared that God does all things right and he gave him glory. I say to you again, friends, a hardened heart is a dangerous thing. And that's why the writer of Hebrews warns, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So as we wrap up, I guess the question of all questions is this. What condition is your heart in today? If it's soft and pliable in the potter's hand, he can take a mess, I mean a mess, and do something marvelous. My plan B, God says, can be better than any plan B you thought you had figured out and planned. I'm in the redemption business, but I work with soft, pliable, moldable hearts that are humble to my will. I grew up in church uh, singing a song pretty often. And we sang it often at the end of a service like this. Um, and it made such an indelible impression on me. I still remember a lot of the words today. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will while I am waited, yielded, and still. I'll never forget, it's a young man, just a teenager, sitting in a church service, singing that song like a prayer to God. Wow, God, is my heart soft and malleable to your touch? Am I, am I responsive to you and what you want for my life? And I wonder about you. Would you be willing to sort of pray that song, those lyrics as a prayer to God? Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I'm the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will while I am waiting, yielded, and still. Let's pray together for just a moment. Father, in this sacred moment, I ask that you would speak to every heart like mine, marred and scarred by sin. I don't believe there's anyone here today beyond redemption. I believe there's always that glimmer of hope as in Nebuchadnezzar's case when even the most pompous, hardened heart after experiencing the judgment of God being left to its own designs then became softened again. May in this moment every heart be pliable and moldable to your touch. God, meet us right where we are in grace and reshape us into vessels that seem best to you. Friend, I ask you, would you say those words to God right now, right where you are in your own way? Could you honestly pray these words? If you can, say them to God. Mold me. Make me. Just whisper that to God. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded, and still. Father, I thank you that we're not beyond your redemption. 
no matter how badly we've messed up, as long as our heart is still pliable and responsive to you, you can do amazing things. That is our security. In Jesus' name, amen.